once upon a time, there was a young girl who had a favorite hat, and she would wear that hat all the time. She would wear it to school. She would wear it to fancy dinners out with her parents, even when they told her that there were no hats allowed. She loved this hat more than she loved any stuffed animal she had. And she had a lot of stuffed animals. She had a bear named Bobby. She had a stuffed fish, which was an odd choice of a stuffed animal because it looked like it had been taxidermied. But she, she did love that fish. That fish's name was Roger. And she had a raccoon that was named Rack. She called him Rack because he was a raccoon. And they were great, but they were not, they were not as special to her as her hat. And the thing about the hat that was special was that it was given to her by an old woman who lived in the neighborhood named Genevieve. And that old woman used to be her nanny when she was very young and, and lived in the neighborhood and would take care of her. And this young girl, whose name was Sarah, would go over to Genevieve's house and when Genevieve wouldn't come over and, and Nanny, they, would, they were so close that Sarah would just come over just to hang out, even if she didn't need a babysitter. And Genevieve would always bake these amazing brownies and cookies, and she always had those little Andes candies that you get at the restaurants, the delicious mint sandwich in between the chocolate. She loved those things. And Genevieve always had a, a tray of those. And anyway, one day, when Sarah was about five years old, she went over to Genevieve's, and Genevieve wanted to show her around the house because Sarah hadn't really explored much of the house. She would always just, you know, hang out in the living room, and they would have snacks, and they would do these little tea parties. Genevieve wouldn't make tea for Sarah because she was five, and you can't give caffeine to five-year-olds, so she would just give her, you know, some lemonade or something in a cup. But Sarah loved to pretend that it was tea. So anyway, they had some tea, they had some of these wonderful brownies, and Genevieve took Sarah up to her office. She had an office, it was like an art studio actually, because Genevieve was, was an artist. And her husband had long since passed away, it used to be his office, and she had converted it in, into this art studio. And she would make all sorts of things, she would paint, she would sculpt, I mean, it was a large office. She even had a table saw in there. You know, she was like a hardcore builder, creator. It was one of those table saws that had like an exhaust fan, because I don't know if you've ever used a table saw, but if you don't have anything to suck the sawdust out, it just fills a room, and if you breathe that in, it's really not good for, for your lungs. So anyway, Genevieve was showing Sarah around the room. Immediately, Sarah went to the table saw, because she thought it was cool, and, and Genevieve very gently slapped her hand away and said, you shouldn't be touching table saws, you're five years old and it's very dangerous. And so she said, oh, okay, well, thank you for letting me know that. And then something caught her eye in the corner of the room. It was this hat. And as Sarah moved closer to the hat, she noticed it was sitting on top of this little doll. And this little doll was on this little chair, but she was positioned in a way as if she was watching over the room. And so Sarah asked Genevieve, well, why is this doll here? She says, well, that's my creativity doll. And when I'm feeling stuck and I'm in my room thinking of something I want to create and I feel lost or I don't know what to put on my blank canvas, I turn and I talk to the doll and she will give me a creative idea. 
sometimes she suggests a painting. Some One time she suggested a coffee table, so I had to buy the table saw. And she's always there for me when I feel stuck. Now, Sarah thought this was particularly inspiring because she told Genevieve that often she feels the same way. Sometimes at school or sometimes at home and she feels stuck and she doesn't know what the next thing to do might be. And that's when Genevieve took the hat off of the doll and placed it on little Sarah's head. She said, whenever you're feeling stuck, you can think about your creativity doll and the hat and maybe it will inspire you to have an idea. So years go by and Genevieve was always in Sarah's life until one day she decided she was going to move away. Now this was very hard for Sarah because Genevieve was such an inspiring person in her life. But when Miss Genevieve had to move away, that's when Sarah decided she would always keep this hat very close to her, almost always on her head, to remind her of Genevieve and the times they had together. But more importantly, it gave her confidence to be herself at school and even in a restaurant where she felt like there's so many adults here and everyone's looking at me and I feel like I don't know what to say or do. She would feel confident with the hat on. One day in school, it was Sarah's turn to present a big project. Now this wasn't any project. This was sort of like the volcano projects you're supposed to do in school. But the teacher said, you must make it your own. Now Sarah didn't know what to do. She looked up how to make the volcano project Everybody does the same thing. Baking soda, put it in the brown clay volcano, and it spurts everywhere. She didn't know how to solve this problem until she thought about Genevieve and the hat. And so she thought, I'm going to make the most fabulous volcano anyone has ever seen, inspired by my hat. Her volcano was two feet tall. It was sparkly. It had movement. It spun around. And she used everything she could think of to make it the most colorful, beautiful volcano any of the children or her teachers had ever seen. When it came to the day to present their volcanoes, Genevieve was very worried that maybe the mechanism she built wouldn't work. She started to get very nervous, thinking, did I put too much into this? Did I overbuild this? What if the making soda mixture isn't right? But. Her dad helped her load it into the car, and they drove to school, Genevieve with her hat on. And when it came time to present, and all of the children were standing around, Genevieve plugged her volcano in, it started to spin around, and everyone was in total shock. When sparkles and foam came shooting out all over the walls and classroom, and all the children cheered and were so happy that Sarah had made such an amazing and inspiring invention so that Sarah was passed on and had was the winner in her whole school for the science project and she got to go to the state-wide science competition and she was very excited to do it and she was representing her school and she was so proud and so just like she did the previous time she had to make it even bigger this time. So she made it four feet tall with sparkles and extra foam. And she had it battery powered. So she just needed to press a button and it would 
launch from across the room and she her goal was to have the foam and sparkles shoot 20 feet in the air because this science fair was gonna be outside obviously because Sarah's not the only pit kid in this competition making some overly ambitious projects and that classroom still needs to be cleaned up because it was quite a mess it's that corkboard ceiling it just it was everywhere so on the day of the statewide science fair she packed everything into her car her dad drove her she had the hat with her and when she got there she had set up and she was so nervous but also so excited and she set up everything her family was there her mom her dad even roger the fish was there Sarah asked that mom bring Roger the fish. It was, again, it's just a stuffed fish. I know it looks real. It's uncanny how it looks like a real fish. It's kind of upsetting if you see it at night, but it's fine. It's a very nice fish. So when it was Sarah's turn to present, she went up and went to put her hat on her head. It wasn't there. She didn't have her hat with her. So Sarah got very scared and very nervous and suddenly very shy. And the group of people seemed eight times bigger than where they were before and she felt 10 times smaller than she did before. She didn't know what to do. She was scared to talk or present, but then she remembered Genevieve. Genevieve was her whole inspiration, and Genevieve didn't have a hat on. She had the doll with the hat on, but Genevieve was also inspired. She had that big table saw. She was a creator, and she still did stuff. So Sarah knew, I don't know that I need the hat. I just need the thought. I just need the idea of what the hat made me feel. And she did that, and she mustered up all her strength, and she pressed the button, and everyone was covered in glitter and foam. And so was her first place trophy that she won for the statewide science fair. And she dedicated her trophy and named it Genevieve. The end. So little Jason was very excited for his camping trip. He had never gone camping before, but he had heard all these tall tales from his dad about how exciting it was and that they were going to go fishing for the very first time. And Jason was super excited to go fishing because it's something his dad liked. And sometimes when there's certain things that your parents like, you like to do them. And then there's certain things your parents do that you don't like to do, like taxes. That seems awful. And mom and dad have to do them every year. Jason thought, I don't want to ever have to do that, but let's focus on fishing. So the day came to go camping. Jason packed up everything he needed, and they drove out into the woods right by this beautiful lake. It was called Lake Clearwater. They started unpacking everything. And Jason asked his parents, where do we plug in the lights? His dad laughed. We don't plug in anything. We're camping. We're out here and we are just going to use lamps and candles and we're going to use a fireplace. Oh, that's kind of weird, but kind of cool. And then they set up the tents and he was like, where's the, where's the mattress to put our beds? Sorry, bud. That's not how camping works. You're going to be sleeping on the floor. Am I in trouble? He asked his parents, why do I have to sleep on the floor? Dad said, well, sometimes it's just fun to do. Jason said, dad, sometimes you lay on the floor because your back problems. Dad was like, that's not what I'm talking about. This is camping, okay? You sleep on the floor. And he's like, okay. So they get everything ready. They're all situated and they're set up. Jason said, all right, dad, 
I'm ready to go fishing. The dad laughed. <laughs> Not so fast, buddy. You gotta wait until early in the morning to go fishing. And Jason was like, all right, dad, you wake me up. I'm excited. We'll go fishing. That night, they had a fun dinner. They had s'mores because, listen, if you go camping, you have to have s'mores. If you're listening to this and you're going camping, you're just in charge as the little kid of making sure the s'mores get packed, okay? And a good pillow. So he went to bed that night and he had a tough time sleeping. It was a little scary sleeping outside, even though you were inside at 10, hearing different sounds. It's a weird place to sleep. He's on the floor. He still kind of felt like he did something wrong. Who sleeps on the floor? But here we are. He had a tough time sleeping, but he did eventually fall asleep. The next morning, when they woke up, Jason turned to his dad. His dad turned to Jason, and they both just kind of gave each other a a nod, acknowledging it's time. So they quietly pulled their boots on, quietly pulled their jackets on, not to wake mom and sister, and they quietly unzipped the tent and snuck out to the middle of the campsite. There was a tiny couple of embers burning from the fire before that night with a little stream of smoke. It was cold. Everything had a little bit of water. Everything was a tiny bit wet from the dampness of the night before. Dad grabbed the tackle box and the poles, and Jason was in charge of holding the net. When they marched down to the side of the lake, the water looked like glass. Almost hard to tell that it was even water. It was so still and quiet. And Dad picked just the right spot where he told Jason, this is where I've always fished. This is where my dad took me to fish. And we've always used that net. Now, Jason, again, had never been fishing before, so he was very excited. So, Dad opened the tackle box. He showed Jason how to bait the hook, and they put a couple of weights on and tossed him into the water. Now, again, Jason didn't know what to do next. What do we do now, Dad? Now we wait. Now, that didn't sound super fun to Jason because asking little kids to just sit there and wait was a difficult task on its own. Can I throw rocks into the water? No, 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 we don't want to disturb the fish. Can I stand in the water? No, we don't want to disturb the fish. So Jason and his dad just sat there and waited. Now, lucky for them, because dad knew the special spot. Only about 10 minutes later, one of the poles started to move up and down. So Dad quickly ran with Jason over to the pole. They grabbed it together, and he showed Jason how to reel it in. The pole was almost pulling really hard. It was hard to hold. Dad had to help Jason reel it in. And they reeled and reeled and fought this fish all the way into shore. And what happened next was the most magical thing Jason had ever seen. When the fish got close, Dad told Jason to grab the net. He scooped it under the fish and lifted it into the air. And when he did, the fish turned solid gold. Jason's dad was jaw-dropped. He had heard tales from his grandfather, who was told by his grandfather that there were golden fish in Lake Clearwater. But he had never seen one before. And in all honesty, Jason's dad wasn't a very good fisherman to begin with. It's one of those things that your parents say they're good at something or you just kind of assume it. And as you get older, you realize, oh, maybe not. So Jason's dad had never caught a golden fish, never mind even saw one before. 
Now Jason is struggling to hold this thing because gold is pretty heavy and a solid gold fish is super heavy. So Jason's about to drop it and he does. He unfortunately drops the net and the fish turns from gold back into fish and swims away. Now Jason gets real upset and he gets a little sad and his dad claps him on the back and is laughing. Son, we have seen something only your great-great-grandfather has seen. A golden fish in Lake Clearwater. That's something to be excited about. But we didn't catch it, Dad, said Jason. Jason's dad smiled at him. Fishing isn't just about catching things. It's about the experience together. Like with all things, it's the journey, not the destination. Jason didn't really understand this catchphrase because he wasn't allowed to really move. So what journey? We're just standing in one spot. Can't even stand in the water. So they went back up to their campsite as Jason's arms were very tired from holding up a golden fish. They went up. He told his mom and his sister, who both rolled their eyes at Jason, thinking he's telling another one of his tall tales, like the robot that flew overhead their house that one time. It didn't really fly over. It was just a drone. He'd never seen one before, and he was pretty convinced there were robots taking over. That's a story for another time. They had lunch. They had dinner. And Jason was quiet for pretty much the rest of the day. So Jason's dad pulled him aside and said, You're still pretty bothered about that golden fish, huh? Jason thought, yeah, Dad. Like, but what if we caught it? Wouldn't that be like the greatest thing in the world? We could take it back and show everybody. Then we could show Grandpa, who's still around, that the golden fish story is true. Jason's dad smiled and said, we can try again tomorrow. And if we catch the fish, great. But if you don't, you need to promise me that you're not going to get upset by it. You can get discouraged, and that's okay. But don't let it ruin your whole day. Part of trying new things is learning how to succeed and learning how to fail. And this is just another part of it. So we can try again tomorrow, but you have to promise me that no matter what happens, you're going to have fun and you're going to be grateful for the adventure. And it was a little hard for Jason because like a golden fish is probably worth a ton of money and could really change their life. And then mom and dad wouldn't have to worry about the taxes thing so much. But Jason agreed. Okay, tomorrow, no matter what happens, I promise We'll have fun. So that night, they had their dinner. Jason had, again, more s'mores than he probably should. He had like four. And he had enough that like mom and dad gave a look to each other like, oh, we might be in some trouble later. Then that night, Jason went to bed. And when he woke up the next morning, he turned to his dad. His dad turned to him. They gave the nod. And they did the same thing again. They got up quietly. Although there was a couple of... From dad, because that was night two sleeping on the ground for him. Not as easy for a little kid like Jason. They went down to the lake and they fished. They fished for two hours. Not one bite. Nothing. Jason felt discouraged in a different way. I thought this was a special spot. We didn't catch anything. His dad turned to him and said, Well, like my dad told me, there's always next year. And year after year, Jason would go fishing with his dad at the same spot in the same lake with the same net trying to catch another golden fish after about 10 years never seemed to catch one and one thanksgiving they were over at grandma and grandpa's the whole family and grandpa pulled jason aside and said i'd like to show you something and he brought him into his office and he brought him over to this big wooden box 
and he said, Your father told me a story from when you were little, little, about your first time you went fishing, and how you've always been trying to catch that golden fish. Well, I just want to show you that if you stay patient and don't get too discouraged, once in a while, you might get lucky. And he undid the lock of the special wooden box and lifted the hatch, and there was a big, beautiful golden fish, shiny and bright, laying in this purple velvet. Now Jason couldn't believe his eyes. This is only the second golden fish he'd ever seen. Grandpa, you've had this fish the whole time and no, never said anything to anybody? Said, well, your dad knows I have it and he knows one day he'll have one too. So you just gotta stay patient because one day, maybe this will be yours. But if you think about it, you might be able to grab one too. And that is forever why Jason loves going camping and loves going down to Lake Clearwater just to maybe, maybe one day catch his own golden fish. The end. Once upon a time, in a small village, deep in the woods, in the foothills of the mountains, lived a young girl named Mabel. And Mabel lived in a very modest earthen home. It was made of earth and stones, some thatching on the roof. This was hundreds of years ago. This was before electricity. They made their own clothes. They made their own soap. They hunted their food. They grew their vegetables. These were difficult times, but they filled the days quite easily with all of the work. Well, one night, as Mabel and her family were gathered around the hearth. And if you don't know what a hearth is, it's the fireplace. It's the center of these homes where in those days, in those homes, people wouldn't sleep in separate bedrooms. They would all sleep around the fire because that's how they stayed warm. Well, one evening, one cold December evening, Mabel and her brothers and sisters and her parents, they had just had a delicious meal. They made a delicious stew of vegetables and other various meats that they had just sort of curing and laying around their, their humble home. And their bellies were full. They were settling down for the evening. And her father, whose name was Arthur, gathered all the children around to tell them a story. Well, as he was talking, a gust of wind came through the house and blew the fire out. And immediately, a chill descended on their home. And Mabel looked at her father and said, Papa, what are we going to do? In this village, Every home had a hearth like the one that Mabel had. And the plan was always, if one fire went out, 
One would go to the next home with a stick or a bit of straw and ask for a bit of fire to take back to their home. And as long as it wasn't a windy night or a rainy night, this was fairly easy as the homes were pretty close together and the neighbors were close as well. And so Arthur knew what to do and comforted his family, in particular Mabel, who was a little concerned and said, I'll just go and get a bit more fire and bring it right back. So Mabel sat for a moment as her father prepared himself to leave their home and then thought and then said, Papa, can I come with you? And her father looked at her and Mabel was quite small and, and young and, and really not quite prepared to go out into the cold of the night, but he could also see that Mabel was learning to become responsible and wanted to be a part of the activities of the home. And so he said, take my cloak, the one that's over in the corner, wrap it around yourself and we'll go. So Arthur went and wrapped a different coat around his own shoulders and Mabel went to the corner and laid her hands on her father's cloak. And this cloak, oh, it felt cold to the touch and it was heavy when she lifted it, but as soon as she put it around her shoulders and felt the weight of it, it immediately started to warm her up. It was a mix of furs, little bits of things that her father had collected over the years in his hunts. And immediately she felt a sense of pride that she got to wear it and excitement because she was about to help. And any worry that she felt about being chilly or her family perhaps suffering in the cold was balanced out by that excitement because she knew she could do something about it, especially with her papa's help. So he waited for her by the door as she got herself situated and walked across the room. And she looked at Mama, who was cradling her little brother at the time, and she saw in the darkness, as the fire was the only light that they had, that Mama looked both a little concerned and also a little proud, and that matched her own feelings. And so, knowing that she was going to help Papa bring warmth and light back into their home, she put her shoulders up and walked across the room. As she got to her Papa and looked up at him, he looked down at her, giving a little nod, to ask if she was ready, and she nodded back, yes. And he quickly opened the door, put his hand on her shoulder, and guided them out into the cold. And once outside, that cold hit their faces immediately. It stung. Her eyes began to water, but she popped the collar up on Papa's cloak, which was really doing a good job insulating the rest of her. And she covered her mouth with it, and she looked up at her papa, and he looked down at her and gave her a look like, it's okay if you want to stay inside, I can do this on my own. But the look that she shot him back told him that she was going to soldier on. She was a tough, tough kid, and nothing was going to stop her from helping her papa get that fire going again. So they started walking and snow began to fall. And it was light, big flakes of snow. And it was beautiful the way it 
shot across the moonlight and they walked, their breath making clouds in the air as they walked. And they walked and they walked and the nearest house was about a half a mile. And as they approached it, they couldn't see a glow coming from any of the windows. And so they were concerned. Arthur was concerned. And he said to Mabel, he said, Mabel, maybe we should try the other house that's just a little bit further. And she said, no, Papa, maybe they need help. Maybe their fire went out and maybe we can help them. And he said, well, we have to help ourselves. Mabel, we have our family to look after. She said, well, we can, we can do both. We can look after ourselves and we can look after others. This is not a zero-sum game, Dad. And he said, okay, Mabel, I, I really appreciate your spirit. We'll check in on them and we'll see what the situation is with their fire and they need help. Maybe we can help them. So they arrived at the dark house and they knocked on the door and they knew the people that lived there. These were the McGregors and they had lived there for years and they knocked and they knocked and finally the door opened and it was old lady mcgregor and she looked panicked and arthur said old lady mcgregor because that's what everybody called her she had a name but no one knew it he said old lady mcgregor is everything okay we noticed that your fire's not going and ours isn't either so we're out looking for fire do you need help and she said oh it's my husband, old man McGregor. He's sleeping and he just won't wake up. And Mabel got very scared. And she said, no, no, he's, he's alive. He just does this. He's a very deep sleeper. And I'm too old and frail to walk for fire. And our fire went out and I can't get him to budge. It's like trying to wake a rock or some other inanimate object. And Arthur said, well, is he going to wake up anytime soon? I mean, is this normal? Does this happen? And she said, yeah, it does. But, you know, this is pretty bad timing because the snow's coming. It's pretty cold and I'm old and frail and I need some warmth. So Arthur looked at Mabel and Mabel looked at Arthur and they said, okay. Okay, old lady McGregor, we're going to help you. We're going to go to the Connollys and check out their fire situation and we'll get back to you. And so they hoofed it off to the Connollys. And as they approached the Connollys, they could see the red and orange glow from a warm hearth. And they knocked on the Connollys' door. Mr. Connolly answered the door, warm and glowing. And he saw his two neighbors who looked a bit distressed and said, what's happening? And they said, we've lost our fire. The wind blew it out, and then when we went to the McGregor's home, their fire had gone out as well. We were wondering if we could get a bit of your fire to take to them and to take home with us. And Mr. Connolly looked back towards his wife, and Mrs. Connolly looked towards him with an interesting, knowing look. And he said, come in, I have something to tell you. So. Mabel and Arthur looked at each other for a moment and very gratefully stepped inside where it was warm and, and the fire was glowing on them all. And as they passed Mr. Connolly, they noticed that he had a bit of snow still on his shoulders as if he'd been outside. And he turned to them as he was closing the door and said, please have a seat by the fire, get warm. My story's short, 
but it's important. So they sat by the fire, and Mrs. Connolly reached to the side and poured them a bit of the warm apple cider type drink that she was keeping hanging in a pot over the hearth. She gave each of them a little mug of it. They gratefully accepted, warmed their chilly fingers on the mugs. And Mr. Connolly sat down next to his wife, leaned against her shoulder and said, Our fire went out too. Mabel and Arthur looked to each other because one house with a fire going out is one thing. Two houses is a bit curious. But three on the same night tells you that something is going on. And Mr. Connolly said, I was looking all over. It's funny, had I left at a different time, I might have met you out in the snow. But I turned the opposite direction. I began looking for a home that had that glow that would tell me that their fire was lit. The first home I came to, I expected to see it, but didn't. And the second home, I expected to see it and didn't. And I kept going until in the snow, I saw what looked like maybe a deer. But as I got closer to it and it got closer to me, I saw it was too tall to be a deer. It had antlers and it had what looked like brown fur, but then the face looked more like a person. And as they got closer, I couldn't quite tell if this person was a man or a woman. I couldn't tell if they were young or if they were old. I couldn't tell who they were or where they were from, but somehow they just felt like they, they knew something. And because I didn't quite recognize them, I didn't want to go too close, so I called out in the snow, Who are you? And they called back, Who are you? And so I said, I'm Connolly. I am from the family of Connollys, and I'm looking for fire. And the person just nodded and said, I know. And now Mr. Connolly wondered, How could this person know? I've never seen them. They can't know me, so how can they know what's happening in my house? And they said, your neighbor's fires are out as well. Is that right? And he said, yes. And they said, did you stop to see if they needed fire too? And he said, well, I knew they needed fire because they didn't have it, but, but no, I didn't stop. And then this person or being, this someone said, perhaps you should try. Perhaps it would change something. And he looked down at the ground, at the snowy ground beneath him, and thought, why didn't I check? Perhaps I could have brought some comfort to the people along the way and at least let them know that I was out trying to help. Or, or maybe I could have found out that one of them was also out looking for fire and I could have joined them. Why didn't I think of this? And feeling a little bit ashamed, he looked up. But the, the someone was gone. And so he started to wonder what he'd just seen and, and to feel that sense of regret that he hadn't even tried to see how his neighbors were. And in his heart, he knew he had to do something different. So he turned around quickly and went to check on the last one he'd seen. And indeed, they were cold and needed fire, but, but the whole household had had the flu or some sort of illness and they really couldn't get up. And, and he just thought, wow, if I if I'd known, maybe maybe I could have told them, look, I'm doing this, because they definitely seemed scared. And, 
And he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on this. I'll find out what to do. Please wait. And they were really comforted by, by his visit. And so then he went to the next house and reassured them that he would figure something out. And, and then he started to come back to his house and he just had a feeling, just a feeling that maybe someone was watching. And he turned around and there again in the snow was the someone. And even though he couldn't quite see their face, he seemed to see that they were smiling a little. And they said, that's the spirit. And then as he blinked, they were gone. And he turned back to his house and he could see suddenly that it began to glow. So he walked back and joined his wife who said it was just like magic. The fire started on its own and it was already toasty when he got in and he was telling her about the someone he met in the snow when there was a knock on the door and so he looked at Mabel and Arthur and he said what do you think that meant that's the spirit and Mabel looked up to Arthur and Arthur looked down to Mabel and said I think I know and I have a feeling that we won't be needing to take any of your fire with us tonight. And Mabel knew why. Because in her heart, she had a feeling that even by checking in on her neighbor, something might have changed, something might have warmed. And just to be safe, they did take a bit of fire with them, and they did what they would do in this little village. They made a little torch and a little something to shield it from the wind. And it lit their way as they walked past their neighbor's home that was already lit up and looked in the little window and waved to them as the neighbor waved back appreciatively as she rubbed her sleeping husband's cold feet. And then as they got back to their home, there was mama and baby brother sitting by a fire. They opened the door and came in with their little torch. And Mama said, I'm so glad you're back. You won't believe what happened. And Mabel looked up to Arthur and Arthur looked down to Mabel. And they looked at Mama and Mabel said, I'll believe. The yeah. Once upon a time, there was a little boy named Thomas who lived in a little fishing village in Jamaica. Thomas loved to swim. Thomas loved to run. Thomas loved to care for his chickens. But most of all, Thomas loved candy. Now, eating candy isn't necessarily a pastime, but Thomas could have made it one. The thing is, it wasn't just that he loved eating candy. He loved the idea of candy itself. He loved the idea of sweetness. He loved the idea that somewhere, someone tried to make sweetness into something that someone else could have. You could give it to someone. You could give it to yourself. You could put it in your lunchbox. You could put it on a shelf but that there is this way of encapsulating sweetness, putting it into a little container that meant that anyone could have it. And that just delighted Thomas. So 
The thing is, Thomas lived in a place where, although he had so many of the riches of life, wonderful parents, a funny and sometimes frustrating but pretty cool sister, he loved his teachers and he loved school, and he loved being able to lie on his back on the dock at the end of town where the fishermen would come in on their boats at night and where if he was up very early in the morning, he would see them going out. He would lie on his back and he would think about the things that he loved. Nowadays, we call that a gratitude practice. But this was a long time ago and Thomas had never heard of such a thing. He just knew somehow that being thankful for things made life all the sweeter. So he was lying on his back one late December and smelling the baking that was going on in town. And in Jamaica, around the holidays, there are these beautiful cakes and puddings and things that are made with candied fruits and spices, cinnamon and allspice and nutmeg and ginger. And he is lying on his back on this dock, feeling the rough wood beneath his bare skin his feet warm against it, kind of waving his knees back and forth, watching his shorts sway side to side, and smelling the beautiful smells of the baking going on around him. All of the Christmas cakes and pies and puddings with all their dried fruit and allspice and ginger and cinnamon. Just loving the smell of the sweetness on the air as it mingled with the smell of the fresh sea. And he thought, ah, it's probably time to go back home. It's getting a bit late. So he jumped up and his feet thumped, thumped, thumped down this dock, feeling the sturdiness even as it moved a little bit under him. And he walked toward his little village, kind of following the trail of these beautiful smells coming out of everybody's homes as they prepared for Christmas lunches and dinners and visits to friends. And as he walked, he saw the shop owner, Mr. Andrews, putting something up outside. It was a cut-out picture of a cane, but not a cane that he'd ever seen before. This one was white and red alternating as if perhaps a white cane had red ribbon wrapped around it or a red cane had white ribbon wrapped around it and he thought why why on earth is mr andrews putting that out there he's a shop owner and he sells different foods and things i didn't know he sold canes too so being a curious boy he walked over and said good afternoon mr andrews and mr andrews said Good afternoon, Thomas. And Thomas said, What is that cane? Is that something you're going to sell now? And Mr. Andrews said, It's something I am selling now. But it's not the cane you might think it is. It's a special kind of cane. Thomas said, A special kind of cane? Like a sugar cane? And Mr. Andrews said, Well, in a way. But also not like the cane you know, the sugar cane, or the walking cane. Come inside and I'll show you. So, Thomas looked down at his bare feet, and then Mr. Andrews did as well. 
And then he said, don't worry, you don't need shoes here, come inside. So Thomas walked after him and walked into the store that was filled with the spices and dried fish and dehydrated milk and the different things that the shop sold. And he loved being in the store. Usually he went with his mother after church. That's not true. It wouldn't be open on a Sunday. Usually he went with his mother after school when he had his shoes on and his school uniform. But now he was in his hanging out clothes and and still Mr. Andrews welcomed him in. And being there by himself made it a very different experience. He was able to look at things in a different way. And he looked around and actually lost Mr. Andrews for a moment because Mr. Andrews was bending below the counter at the back of the store. And when he stood up, Thomas saw him holding a tiny version of the cane that he'd seen Mr. Andrews hanging outside. Now this surprised Thomas. He had no idea to expect this to be so small. He had expected it to be perhaps as big as the one that was hanging outside, which was a good two, maybe two and a half feet long. But it was little. And he walked up to Mr. Andrews and looked at it, and Mr. Andrews said, This is a candy cane. Now, we know how Thomas feels about candy. He loves the idea of it, maybe even more than eating it itself. And he looked and he said, Can I? hold it? And Mr. Andrews said, of course. So he handed it down. And to Thomas's surprise, it was hard and it smelled amazing. The smell of peppermint just rose up to his nose from it. And he couldn't believe what a magical little thing this was. And Mr. Andrews said, do you want to taste it? Thomas's eyes lit up. Mr. Andrews said, go ahead. That one's yours. And Thomas hesitated because Mummy didn't get him candy. This wasn't a candy that he'd made. This was just a free candy and he couldn't believe his great luck. Mr. Andrews said, make sure you tell other people, if you like it, that it's pretty great. And so Thomas gave it a lick and oh boy, it was a little buttery, a little sweet and had this beautiful peppermint taste to it. And he thought, my goodness, I will tell them. I'll tell everyone how wonderful a candy cane is. And he looked at Mr. Andrews and he said, are there enough for everyone to have one? And Mr. Andrews said, yes, there are. And Thomas thought, nothing would make me happier than if I could make sure that I gave one to everyone. He was afraid to say this out loud but its heart so in love with sweetness and sharing sweetness with other people just wouldn't keep it in. And he said, Mr. Andrews, I want everyone to have one of these. And Mr. Andrews said, everyone can come and get one. But Thomas said, not everyone can. I have this one, but I want my sister to have one and mommy and my friends at school and everyone around to have this. It's so wonderful. Mr. Andrews thought for a moment, now, I won't tell you what Mr. Andrews was thinking because this is really Thomas's story, but there was definitely a process going on in his mind. He looked around his shop, and then Thomas looked around as well at all of the things that were Christmassy and really celebrating the season. And 
Thomas didn't know exactly what happened at the time, but he could guess at it later when he was a grown man and running the store himself. As Mr. Anders looked around at all of the decorations, and something shifted in him. And he said, Because of you, Thomas, everyone will have one. Tell everyone to come and get one from me as a present for Christmas. I want everyone to have some sweetness. And Thomas was so happy to do it. He walked around and then eventually started running around town and telling everyone that Mr. Andrews had these candy canes for Christmas and everyone could have one. And he joyfully took his home and decided to save it. And every day took a little look with a little gratitude on that dock and thought how wonderful it was that he wasn't the only one experiencing something so sweet. The end.